Hiya and welcome back to Chatting in the Stacks with me, Chloe Austin. This episode, I'm joined by the fantastic Rashi Rajguru. Rashi is a London-based artist working predominantly in sound, image and written word. Her work looks at translation, the transmutation of knowledge and the generative nature of sound and image. Rashi split her time as a volunteer at the Stuart Hall Library between working with the audiovisual collection and using the collection to research for a new publication, which takes as a starting point the imaging of a black hole by the Event Horizon Telescope. This episode, Rashi reads from some of her transcriptions of Innova's first symposium. We discuss the mediation of science, accessibility to knowledge, Stuart Hall and a whole lot more. I have to apologise in advance for the not-so-perfect sound, but we recorded at the same time as some local landscaping. I promise it's only got a few minutes of dodgy sound to sit through. So without further ado, let's get into the chat. I am blind, I cannot see, I stumble and I trip. I feel the sun hot upon my face. I smell the fragrance from the flowers. So Rashi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for asking. Um, What made you want to volunteer at the Stuart Hall Library? I... Left uni, was at Camberwell, um, and was looking for jobs, applying to lots, not getting it, um, and trying to find a way of kind of stepping out of working in hospitality and working in more arts organisation roles. And then I saw an arts jobs that there was a volunteer position at Stuart Hall Library, which I'd never heard about. I didn't know what it was. Mm. So then I started to Google Stuart Hall in Innova, and within two seconds I kind of knew it was a no-brainer it was just the perfect place to work for um and yeah and I've always kind of been interested in libraries I think they're pretty amazing spaces and how they how anyone kind of collects information and then after that makes it accessible mm-hmm. and all of the different factors that influence between those two states of information you know the first taking it in and then deciding and working collectively with other people to bring it back out again mm. I think is really interesting and then when I read about um, Stuart Hall Library's kind of ethos and the people that it's trying to represent I, yeah just thought that I'd really love to volunteer and spend some time there great mm. so what did you study when you were at University of Campbell I did a uh, photography mm. uh, which is in the fine art department um, and yeah it was amazing really amazing tutors um they really honed in on the philosophy of photography. So I think that's why a lot of us, um, a lot of my friends and I from that course, um, I think the reason we came together is because we realized we had such a similar interest in like questioning photography. Yeah, and I think think one of the reasons why I loved Camberwell's photography course so much was because they really, they take, they have, what's the best way of saying it? Photography as a medium is really, is newer than others, right? It's newer than painting, sculpture, etc. So it's kind of always had um, this air of debate. It's always having Mm. to validate itself. It's it's always been compared to other mediums or being regarded by some people as just the the reference stage. Mm. It's kind of like means to a real end, which would be making a painting or some other medium of art. And so it was really interesting to have all these shooters come to us and lay out all of these other positions being told by other people and then kind of basically testing us to see whether we agree with them or not. Mm. And if we do, 
then that's great and why um and yeah i think it just generated a lot of really interesting conversation uh about where photography stands if it has to stand anywhere at all mm. and then on a really wider level like what an image is mm. um yeah and then i left uni and then it was around that same time even though everything that they the syllabus and all of the artists that they showed to us were they were really diverse um but obviously now i've come to Stuart hall library and seen that it is just kind of scratching i think a lot of institutions just kind of scratch the surface with uh the representation of artists mm. that they give to students um, but I noticed that I think it's Kimothy Donkor, who's mm -hmm. the new head of painting at Camberwell. I think he brought all of his first years in here recently. Yeah, he was actually um, here a bit for our Denzel Forest Study Day as well. Oh, great. Yeah, I was here in the so morning. Yeah, like, and that, another thing, and when I realised that they start, they do stuff like that, like Denzel Forrester, uh, someone was telling me that he's only, he's come up more, only very recently, he's got a really long body and catalogue of work, but it's only... Uh, recently that he started to have wider recognition mm. obviously having the uh, collaboration with um, Art in the Underground, Art in the, Underground yeah. the commission for Brixton Tube Station and then Innova extrapolates that and then has an entire study day based on him and brings in loads of contemporary young speakers and yeah it's just such an amazing exercise of giving more recognition to really active artists mm. Definitely. I Who tend to have been around for a really long time as well. And then just get, yeah. you know, slowly get discovered. Discovered in, yeah. you know, quotation marks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they were always here. Yeah. yeah, they were always around. There's yeah. actually, what you've said has actually reminded me of a really great meme I saw the other yeah, day on Instagram. And it was um, a picture, some, an, oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a crowd of people. And the meme was basically um, an old artist who's been working for a long time. And then... Yeah there were all these people crowding around this one person yeah, yeah, and then yeah. they obviously had like the names so it was like gallerist, curator, oh, yeah, you know, crowding around this older artist and yeah. then in the, in the side was someone looking like, oh my God, so surprised and it was like family and friends. <laughs> so, because, you <laughs> know, people great. have been around for a very long time and yeah. they get discovered and it's yeah, like yeah. they're 80 years old. Um, and, you know, and I think the actual like tag was like um, older artists mm. who who... who haven't had a market up until now. Mm, so suddenly, you know, you know. What kind of discovery is it? Is it it's a, like commercial mm. and institutional discovery. Um, but then there's a whole argument to that too, the positive and negatives of that. Oh, so, definitely. I think it's, yeah. it's, it goes both ways and it's difficult. You can't, you can't find everyone all the yeah, time. Yeah, right, exactly. So people could probably try a lot harder. Yeah. But then you have spaces like this, mm. which try so hard and have such a dedicated team. Tavian and Susan and Teresa, mm. so amazing the amount of work that they put into. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so great to come and just help a little bit mm. <laughs> with all of the hard work that they do. Yeah. But, yeah. And before I go on to the next question, what you were saying about how you felt that um, they were just scratching the surface, I think yeah. I studied art history and it's very similar where I remember we had one lecture, one lecture on African artists, contemporary African artists. Of course, of course you did. Yeah, one yeah. lecture. And at the time, I was like, this is incredible. Like, yeah. I'm so lucky to be studying these contemporary African artists. Right. But there's so many, yeah, so yeah. many more than you could fit in one exactly. lecture. Um, and, you know, for me working here, that's been a discovery to see. Yeah. So many more. Mm. The amazing amount. So, moving on from that, 
what have you been up to in your time volunteering? I know you've been spending a lot of time in the AV archives. Yeah, so, so about that. I've been trying to help transcribe some materials from the AV archive um, just to make it more accessible in other mm. formats. I think it's quite interesting to also see sound, what happens when you take sound and you put it into text. You know, how does it change from an experience mm. level? Um, also, in general, just wide accessibility, having someone with hearing impairment would, would then be able to now experience the material mm. um, and take on the information because it's available in a different form. Um, and yeah, when Tavian showed me the AV archive, she was like, these are the boxes that are catalogued. Mm. And it was like a good normal amount. And then she took me to another room and unlocked it. And she was like, these are the boxes that aren't catalogued. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dozens and dozens of... Um, random tapes uh floppy disks wow which i think we'll need to get a reader in for but yeah. but yeah um just so many kind of really mysterious things um yeah that was very slowly going through mm. it's quite a long process to um transcribe definitely i think like there's an average um ratio of one to four of the amount of time that i mm. you know in the apparently done lots of googling because yeah. uh, it's a new field uh, apparently in transcribing yeah it's one to four um, so the first thing I was doing was the um, the new internationalism symposium mm. which is it's a two day uh, I think it's about 12 hours of footage wow so that in itself kind of yeah, yeah. that's a long time yeah so um, that's why I've only really done two I've only transcribed two whole pieces so far um but they're ones that are so important, um, especially, yeah, the first one. Definitely. It's so interesting that you're talking about um, the kind of the old technologies that these are on. Yeah. And I think that the transcribing is not only making it more accessible for people who maybe, you know, have access issues, but mm. also um, for the ability to not lose that information. Because yeah. obviously we've got like older... Um, you know technologies that are then yeah, yeah. redundant and yeah. if you don't have a floppy disk reader if it gets corrupted yeah so if you have it written down it seems like it's something that can yeah you kind of you help to immortalize it a bit mm. especially when the stuff here they try so hard to get to get it into the library in the first place mm. uh, or it's these amazing pieces that have just been donated by a trustee um, and they're already weathering away like the both of the things that I've worked with so far are tapes yeah uh, and one of the tapes that I was transcribing at suddenly at one moment the device I was using to listen to it just completely unraveled oh, all no. of the inner tape and I spent the rest of my shift just kind of winding it back winding with a pencil oh, yeah. my gosh. and so so yeah so in that sense it's really important to kind of get this stuff digitised as quickly as possible um, but it's really nice to also put it into other forms at the same time Yeah, definitely. Um, and kind of see what that generates and also, they're saying about winding up the tape. There's also the risk of us losing the skills to know how to. Not only yeah. do we not have a te- you know something to play the tape on, yeah, maybe, exactly. but people don't understand how to use tapes anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I'm really lucky that I remembered how my dad used to do it when his tapes would get um, when the same thing would happen mm. to him. He would just get a pencil and do it. Otherwise, I'd have no idea. Um, that would be vocal. You'd be like, oh god, I've just destroyed the yeah, archive. No, exactly. <laughs> Luckily, it says copy on it. Oh so hopefully, there is isn't. I mean, I haven't found the original. Yeah. It's probably somewhere. Um, but yeah. So yeah, it's really it's been really interesting working back with those older 
formats that we're kind of used to mm. maybe when we were younger and just never come across anymore. Yeah, definitely. It's also interesting when you talk about it takes four times as long to transcribe it because yeah. that is a very long process, but also in a way, um, it's kind of saving some time because if you think if it's 12 hours of the the symposium, yeah. there's a book that's published, the Global, Global Visions, Visions. Yeah. and I've read part of it, like, I'm not sure how long it took me to read, but when you're reading something, you can more easily, you know, flip and skip parts exactly. and kind of go through it like yeah. that. Um, so you are in a way saving time for future researchers who then yeah. don't have to watch the whole thing to get an idea of what's going on. Yeah, well that's the thing. Um, yeah, you can kind of adapt it more to whatever your research is at the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, so yeah, no, it's been amazing to work on. And I believe that in the Global Visions uh, tapes, they've actually managed to capture the Q and A's as well as the. Yeah, exactly. So that was the bit I was focusing on the most. Mm. Um, so. Shall I speak a little bit? Yeah, about introduce what it, is? it. Yeah, we um, both know it very well actually because uh, oh, I've been working you... on the research network. Oh, great! Quick plug great, <laughs> for great, 2020, yeah, which is um, entitled Global Revision. So mm. it's looking back on those sort of ideas that we had back then. But for our listeners, yeah. it'd be great if you could talk us through. Great, I'll do what I know. Um, so in, it was 1994, mm-hmm. uh, and Inver had just become a thing. And they were invited by the Arts Council to put on some kind of inaugural event. Uh, and they decided to make a symposium and have an open dialogue event, uh, which ended up being at what was the Tate Gallery and is now Tate Britain, yeah. just around the corner which from where we are. Which is an interesting, you know, yeah. because Innova was a Rivington place in Shoreditch. Mm. And now we're back here at UAL, which is yeah. opposite, literally two minute walk from Tate Britain. So yeah, it's almost exactly. like we've come home a little kind, bit. Yeah, and really interesting. Um, and then they had, it was about 16 speakers, uh, and they, they would all, they had all written essays prior, mm. which then are now published in the book Global Visions. Uh, and they would read out their essays and kind of stretch them out, turn mm. them into a bit more of a talk. And then after every two or three speakers, they would come together and have a group Q&A. Oh. And the Q&As, as you said, aren't in the published book of the essays. But for me, watching the entire symposium, they were the most interesting parts because you would have this kind of tension between the panellists, either sometimes between each other mm-hmm. um, or between the panellists and the audience. Um, and yeah, I feel like a lot of the energy that was generated out of those interactions and exchanges would be so valuable for people to be able mm. to see. Um, especially because if you didn't know what year that event was and you just watched it or listened to it and you weren't aware of maybe the quality of the recording, if that didn't put too much of a date stamp on it for you, mm. so much of it is still really applicable today, like mm. issues of globalisation or like the utopian idea of internationalism. Uh so yeah, it was a really, really amazing thing to come in every Wednesday and to transcribe this kind of huge behemoth piece. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's actually really nice to finish it because I think it took a couple of months um, to get it done. And I'm sure, yeah, it will need another rereading and um, to check it's all ready um, because I'm hope- I think they're going to do something with it afterwards, mm. but I'm not sure what. I think that's still open. Yeah, still TBC. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's really interesting what you say about how there's lots of like tensions between the speakers yeah. because I think that's something that does get lost when you have this the book, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, the the glossy publication. It's not very yeah. glossy, but, you know, it's the cleaned up version. Exactly. And, um, you know, the 
the talks of Inbraid, their very mm. own distinct chapters, their own sections, they yeah. tend to like kind of you know merge into each other. So you don't see yeah. the you know the conversations between the the exactly. speakers and the, what they might disagree on. So you don't get a perception of that through the book. Exactly. So hopefully that might be a really nice experience for people to kind of see that energy. I think even Fred Wilson, he when he spoke on the day, he actually spoke something quite different to what right. his text is that's in the book. Hmm. That in itself being quite an instinctive reaction to the overarching feel of everyone that was at that event. And it's interesting when you get to uh, the second day, towards the end, I think it's the last opportunity. And Sandy Nairn, who's chairing all of the mm. talks, he kind of opens up the conversation more to the audience and lets right. them kind of speak and just even just give statements and not ask questions. And then so many things start coming out for people feeling like certain things haven't been represented enough mm. or that there aren't enough of the mainstream kind of Eurocentric or white artists in the crowd. Right. Uh, yeah, Rashida Reed makes a really interesting point. Um yeah, so there's there's as so he always much does. As, yeah. <laughs> the scribe is oh, a tiger. <laughs> yeah, I can listen to him all day long. Um, him and Stuart Hall, but yeah, so so much there. Mm, definitely, mm. I actually was um, shown a really well. So I listened to a really interesting recording the other day from yeah. uh, a conference that happened in Wolverhampton, the Black Art Group. Um, yeah, and it was from Claudette Johnson's um, talk and. She kind of presented her work and was talking about how she, the importance of the subjectivity of a black woman and mm. how it's so different from these like older white male artists who are painting yeah. black women. And then they, they kind of played this clip where this guy in the audience was like, but how's it different though? And he was very like, you know, yeah. silencing her yeah, and just yeah. basically arguing against her. And I never thought that that, that that was the reaction to her work, but it just right. goes to show the importance of, of hearing these Q&As. It really gives you a sense of what, yeah. what people were up against Absolutely. and what the actual discourses were at the time. Yeah, because they're not rehearsed as well. It's kind of like direct conversation. Mm. But, and it's so, um, it's quite inspiring to see uh, those exchanges actually happening because you kind of, I feel like, a lot of uh, talks or things that I've gone to in the last couple of years of studying and just graduating never really have that air. Mm. Um, and maybe that's due to a larger, again, institutional problem of mm. having things quite clean cut. Um, yeah, and, and again, that just kind of shows why the creation of Inver was so important and it's kind of so great that they started with quite a bang. Mm, definitely. Like and I think that really set the tone for how everyone saw the potential of what Innova could be and is. Mm. So, moving on from the symposium mm. and kind of outside of the library, so how has your work in the library influenced the work you've been doing outside the library? Can you tell us a bit more about sort of your art practice and what you get up to? In a way, I mean, it's kind of influenced everything, mm. for sure. Especially with the stuff that I do in my practice and what I look at a lot of it, I'm looking at stuff at quite a wider, um, taking a step back and looking at quite a wider breadth. And you can get lost in a lot of that research. And I think especially after being, spending time in Stuart Hall, in the library, it's kind of helped me to streamline my research to the people that I actually want to mm. read from and listen to because of who they represent and who they are trying to bring attention to. If that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. I've I've recently been trying to um, read a lot more books by people of colour because I exactly. realised that that was Stuff a like massive that. 
yeah. hole that I yeah you know. and you like you can spend your whole life having the opinions um, and we probably have the same ones and then I actually look at my like recent reading list and mm. I'm like wow everyone I've read is white in the last <laughs> three months yeah I'm like that doesn't really match up with the things that I say when I'm talking to oh, people oh yeah exactly you know? you're kind of all like yeah like yeah you know, pushing for more representation but equally and then, not actually yeah yeah and then I'm like wait I need to uh, exercise that mm. so yeah so being here has definitely made a difference in that I think it's because my coming in I feel so overwhelmed when I look at all of the shelves in such a positive way yeah. that it's it's kind of insane to go somewhere and ev- pretty much everything is all people of colour. Mm. So many women, so many people that you know are from the LGBTQ plus community and to see them in things that are published and that you know are also going to be in other places and or not, which is even more interesting when they only have the only copy. So that... I think when you have that experience time and time again and you're coming here routinely, then that definitely has a huge impact on what I choose to put my attention to Mm. when I leave here, you know, which is great. I think especially being in London and being involved in the arts, Mm. there's so much stuff going on all the time. Yeah, exactly. And it it is quite nice to be like, I'm just going to focus on people of colour. Although, obviously, you know, there are some exhibitions where, you know, it's not just like completely ignoring white white practitioners like that would be terrible but but also knowing where your interests lie and and using that as a way to filter what you are looking at yeah is really yeah yeah exactly even with the book um that i'm sure i'll come on to in a sec uh the book that i'm the publication i'm making now that i'm doing research for i'm obviously trying to get more people of color get more people from different communities uh to either contribute or repurpose their materials into the book Mm. to give it more recognition and I've done the first sweep of research and you it's funny I think I expected more things to come up Mm. but then you realize the systems that you're using are inherently racist Mm -hmm. or inherently sexist like a um does that make sense like the first level of research is not going to bring up those spaces for you anyway um so now I'm kind of delving much deeper and trying to find like direct groups of people that I can go up and speak to and can mm-hmm. help get access to these materials that I want to give more kind of give a platform for well it's interesting you say that because it's almost as if because these materials haven't been given that platform that sort of like you know published platform yeah. that's why they're then very difficult to find exactly so. it's the net it's like by the nature of what it is mm. it's super hard to find um but it's de- it's like obviously there. Mm, definitely. Um, it's also amazing because it makes you think. We're doing that kind of research because it makes you realise that information is. Um, it doesn't have to be just in a published form. Mm. Of course, like it can. There's. It makes you think like also what constitutes as, um, one bit of information. You know, it can just be something that is, not just it can be something that is graphic mm. or it can be something that is uh, an exchange between two people. But as soon as that is recorded and then mediated in a certain way, then you are potentially giving loads of space mm. for something that wasn't previously being given a chance to be seen or spoken mm. about. 
um, if that makes sense. No, definitely. It's almost like legitimising it by... Yeah, you know, by observation. But yeah, yeah, exactly. And people maybe see certain forms of knowledge as the legitimate type. Yeah, just if it's typed down and it's been published yeah. in a certain journal and things exactly. like that. Exactly. It's that whole like peer-reviewed sort of thing. Yeah. But then that obviously then prevents people from finding knowledge from other yeah. you know, avenues, exactly. which is just as valid. Yeah. Interesting. So should we talk about your publication? Yeah. Um, so it is a essentially it's a study into an image that was really popular that came out last year Mm. uh it was the first ever image of a black hole Mm. it came out in april 2019 i don't know did you see it i feel like i did see it but i'm just gonna have a quick google yeah i haven't seen it in a long time yeah it's really interesting seeing the amount of people that either haven't seen it or they only know about it from the memes, which <laughs> I have to accept now has now. to go into the book. There has oh, there's going to have to be a section of black hole memes. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> oh, wow. Is it this one? Is it this big... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep, that's the one. Blurry orange blob. In yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, a lot of people, interestingly, are very dissatisfied with because uh, <laughs> they say it's not... Uh, high definition enough oh we're so used to having high def images yeah. people can't understand how far away they yeah. <laughs> i'm like okay i'm done the zoom on the camera like, yeah they're like get an iphone on it <laughs> for something which is millions of lives away. yeah so so the book is looking at that image but what firstly it's asking what it what is it mm. like on so many levels like what is it on a surface level what is a black hole mm. what is that photo I mean the photo is a composite it's not just one image um how does that work how is there a team that was even able to create it mm. like the physics and then when you start to step a little bit more outside what is the image in a cultural context and mm. um, how is it that we interact with the image how is it mediated to us what are the power structures that influence that? Um, how does it? How does it influence progress on both a local and international level by being an image which is quite spectacular, hmm. or even just being a scientific research that has an image output? It's quite interesting. Um, how then that is something that we can see as a meme or in a news article the next day compared to lots of other research which doesn't have such an image-related result. Mm. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. Um, And then everything else and how that then gets... How we talk about astrophysics culturally, um, it always kind of very quickly moves into space travel. Mm. Oh, yes. When we talk about it on a... You know, through the media sphere... um, those two seem to be like really connected, even though they're very different things. Like astrophysics is one field of study, hmm. and then space travel is this strange colonized space, hmm. which it, it feels like the next you know next we, frontier. Isn't yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of an extension of the in one ways the American frontier, which hmm. everyone knows about from the space race. 
Um, and of course, the the frontier originally was the frontier of encroaching onto the Native Americans' land. Exactly. In the, you know, traveling further yeah. west, and that was the yeah. frontier, was the, the furthest they've got. And now yeah. they've reached that frontier, yeah. so now we're going up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is it up? I kind of, you can't have an up in space, you, can you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess we're going north. You're just kind of going away. Away. <laughs> further away. Yeah. If we are the center, then we are going further yeah, exactly. away. Yeah, exactly. In our egocentric selves, <laughs> yeah, we're going away. And it's you start to see the language of that we would usually associate with things like the frontier, like settlement mm. and colonization, then being taken and used, or ownership, things like that, and being used so interchangeably with space travel. So you then have this big kind of filter, yeah, kind of that surrounds the idea of space travel, which then makes it quite difficult for us to kind of pierce through that and see if there's other ways that maybe we could be mm. looking at and trying to rebuild our relationship to what is what we know is outer space. There's a really brilliant book um, by Lisa Mazzeri. Mm-hmm. It's called Placing Outer Space. And she talks about science communication, how scientists will be doing their PhD research and they'll be working for years to get data that can prove that exoplanets exist, mm. for example, it's one um, area of research. But the data is just, it's numbers on a graph, mm. that's it. It's just dots and they're quite sporadic. But she takes you into these university labs and in these meeting rooms where the students are sat there with their kind of mentors and they basically carve out a way of narrating this data to mm. a group of people, a wider group of people. And it's really interesting to see how there's a word that comes up a lot, characterization, notice. So it's a way of kind of adding color to the data Mm. thematically and making it something that you can get people behind almost on an emotional level, Mm. especially with talking about uh, potential for space travel, trying to make those things in space that seem really unfamiliar, familiar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Oh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I know, there's, there's <laughs> so, so much. much stuff. There's this so idea much. of characterization. Yeah. I'm just thinking when we were speaking about, you know, the connections with like colonialism and, yeah. and seeing space as a final frontier, as somewhere that we, you know, space travel, going to another planet, colonizing another planet. Yeah. It's very interesting that outer space yeah. um, and for anyone on the, who's listening to the podcast who is an expert in astrophysics, and we're probably using the wrong terms, so I, oh, yeah, I'm please. probably using the wrong um, terms. Put my email address on there, somebody <laughs> yeah, can please exactly. correct me on everything. You can write so I have in. No idea. Well, actually, no, let's not write in, let's not flood the email address. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have to deal with the fact that neither of us are probably particularly many experts yeah. in this, so I'm sorry if this is using the wrong terminology. But out of space is obviously quite unknown to us, mm. and it's interesting that rather than it being a place for us to kind of look at that unknown mm. um we are very quick to kind of project something that is known onto yeah, it and yeah, then think absolutely. of it as another place just another another place for us to go and do what we do here <laughs> yeah well it's a way of understanding it as well isn't mm. it it's a, it's these things which are you can't comprehend mm. what's there like it's even through i've been saying to every person that's been with me in the early evening i don't know if you look mm. basically south but southwest you'll see venus throughout the whole of january oh. And I'll be stood there and I'll be like, guys, that's Venus. And for that one second, everyone gets really interested because then suddenly that dot gets familiarised. 
Uh, and it gets characterised with this object which they're sort of familiar with from things they've been taught when they were a kid or at school and then that's kind of it and then that fades away. But you have that one kind of moment where you do have some sort of familiarisation mm. with this thing which apart from that we kind of really don't understand. Definitely. On a base level. Obviously yeah. experts know everything. Experts, <laughs> experts <laughs> we don't. But, but that's what's really interesting and then maybe apart from that the only way we see some of these things is through is through media or mm. through kind of acts of contemporary art. Mm. Like Katie Patterson, she's got this really mm. interesting piece. Um, it's the candle and she'll burn it in a space. It's kind of a long, thin candle. And it's been made, so it's composed of lots of different um, scents which are supposed to kind of characterise uh, travel from Earth outwards into eventually what is a black hole. Right. So if you're going past Jupiter or mm. Neptune, like the smells that she has decided could represent mm. those parts or when you're just going through a completely empty space and there's mm. a smell of just like burnt metal or something. Um, and she uses very human objects uh, as the starting points for the smells which she makes and puts into the candle. So really interesting. Um, and I think that is what I hope ties the book together after having all of the research from speaking to scientists and speaking to specialists in the field, looking at how the media has taken such a specific area of research and kind of extrapolated and disseminated it through languages and through cultures. And ultimately, how artists kind of operate that nuance in between and that kind of space of illusion. There's um, there's a strand of philosophy i guess it's quite a recent um object oriented ontology oh got, i've never heard of that yeah it's, kind of, <laughs> it's come out of um speculative realism there's this guy oh. called graham Harmon who you might recognize he's kind of the one of the faces of it um i don't want to insult anyone else uh, <laughs> he he kind of he so he talks about the idea of giving agency taking agency away from humans and giving it back to objects right when he says objects he means everything so a human would class as an object Mm -hmm. but also a pencil also innova as an organization (laughs) like really abstract concepts anything that can be a thing whether it's inanimate or um tangible or not in that realm classes an object and it's the idea that how can we take away our authorship Mm. in these kind of spaces and give it back to these things it's a speculative kind of um philosophy of what would happen and the more i've been researching into our relationship to outer space um particularly astronomical bodies like black holes Mm. or ex potential exoplanets etc um it's been i've noticed more and more people kind of referring to certain speculative ideas like object-oriented ontology and how it kind of gives an argument to us potentially not colonising these places Mm. Um, because maybe it's helpful to look at the wider universe without us being the 
Yeah, not being the centre of it. Not being the centre of it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because especially, I think, this is taking me back to when I studied physics, yeah. the ideas about the centre of the universe were, where you, were, were from your point of view. Mm. So that, because the universe goes down and up, down, all yeah. that sort of stuff. So it's mm-hmm. like, you you take it as, you're the you're the point, and everything's yeah, exactly. outside of it. It's very interesting. Yeah, you kind of choose your frame of reference. Mm. But maybe but we should very... not be yeah, in the middle of everything. Exactly. All the time. Or change the frame of reference and kind of like just push it away from yourself a little mm. bit and then see what happens. And mm. um, so yeah, that so lots of stuff and then and then there's uh there's a lot of the best thing that I found in all this research is some feminist uh speculative science fiction, which is great. Mm. It's just a really fertile ground of people trying to take the issues we have right now in terms mm. of the uh, institutional and power structures uh, and looking at it intersectionally mm-hmm. with race, gender and so many other issues and seeing what can happen if we speculate a kind of alternate history or an alternate future to mm. what is more likely to happen. Yeah. Uh, there's actually there's a book that I found here, which I've been trying to get for ages. Um, which is in the library, mm. and it's called Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture um, by uh, Yatasha L. Womack. Um, and yeah, it's the first, she's the first person to ever actually make a book-length kind of review yeah. of all of the different nodes of Afrofuturism. Mm. So there's, uh, there's, so, there's a lot in there. Um, I'll have to. I'll definitely add this onto like a mini reading list or something yeah. at the end. Um, but yeah, I really recommend it. It's in the essay section, and it's just it because everything is such a. It's all really new areas. Mm. A lot of the research for the book, so it was really amazing to find this in here. Great. Mm. We're full of hidden treasures, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I need to come here on days that I'm not volunteering mm. as well because it's just not. And especially with the transcribing, I have to like completely focus. Yeah. So I try to not look at any of the shelves mm. the entire time I'm here just because I get so distracted so because everything is amazing. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't read enough in here at all. Mm. <laughs> I need to come back when I'm not yeah. working here and then yeah. maybe I'll get a chance to read something. Gosh, so before we move on to this book, I have a few more things to talk about in terms of astrophysics and your yeah. publication. So, yeah, what were you saying? I find it very interesting as well that we we're talking about the terms of reference that we yeah. tend to look at these planets that we might be able to live on yeah. um, and kind of think like, oh yeah, we can colonise that. Yeah. But we don't so much focus on the unlivable planets exactly. and think about that sort of, you know, yeah. alter- alternative future. Yeah, you know, yeah. that, that's a, you know, that's a very real possibility of mm-hmm. what the Earth might become through yeah. our own fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are not so much focusing on that. They're I, mean, I guess it's a thing to do with hope that people are like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just escape to Mars. Yeah, Rather absolutely. than looking at how Mars is currently unlivable. Do we yeah. want our planet to be unlivable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people uh, forget uh, how far away Mars mm. actually is. Like when you look on a kind of map that's roughly to scale, that would take a really yeah. long time. Um, there was a great uh, writing, it was a writing workshop series that Jupiter Woods did. Oh, right. Um, and I was able to drop in on just one of the sessions. And we were, it, we were basically speculating of what would happen if we tried to actually leave Earth, mm. go to another planet, for example, Mars. Then um, we tried to write something about, uh, we tried to build a narrative of that relationship between the people that stayed on Earth and mm. the people that were on Mars. 
Uh, and it's interesting because then you try to think of the logistics of how you'd actually do that and how long does it take to get there? Mm. And if you... Obviously, both planets are orbiting the sun, so but they go at different rates. So mm. there's almost a sweet spot uh, where the planets are closest together. And mm. then, obviously, they'll fall out of sync again for however long it takes for them to rejoin. Yeah. And we started thinking about, well, what if that sweet spot was the only time that you communicate mm. between both planets? What would happen? Uh, and, yeah, that was a really interesting exercise to write something especially when all of the everything I've been doing up until now has been research and looking at what other people have already Mm. done and whenever you do things like that I think the reason speculative fiction is so interesting is because it is always talking about what is actually happening now yeah you know I I can imagine some people might dismiss things like that or even fiction in general uh, because they might say that it isn't that it's completely separate Mm. from the current affairs or current exchanges that are happening in day-to-day life but especially with things like science fiction it's sometimes it's the most it's the type of literature that's actually pointing most towards current society because it's questioning it or it's showing it in in an alternate way to make it feel like it is so but it's actually very much what's happening right now Definitely, definitely. There was a recent, I mean, I don't know when I'm going to be editing this, but there was a recent episode of Doctor Who that may yeah. have been on many months ago. <laughs> um, I don't usually watch Doctor Who, it was, yeah. it was on the telly, so I watched it and it was all about um, climate change and, and the planet. Right. And spoiler alert for this episode. <laughs> but um, If it's they, been months, it's okay. Yeah, they yeah. were on a ruined planet and then they found out that that planet was Earth in the future. Right. And they're, they're like, what is this horrible planet? Why is it so mm. horrible? And then they see a sign that says like Moscow or something. And they're like, oh, this is Earth. Like, you know. Right. Well, I love that that is getting time on BBC. Oh, Brilliant. definitely. I thought yeah. this is terrifying for the children. But yeah. maybe it's, it's necessary. Yeah, so much better. they got to know. Yeah. So uh, moving a little bit away, but staying yeah. on the same track. I'm kind of interested in what you were talking about with the, the image of the black hole. Mm. And how it's actually a composite. Yeah. And what you were talking about earlier about photography and looking at photography, you know, really in depth. Yeah. Um, because our, I think a lot of images that we see about space are actually composites and they're actually taken yeah. using a lot of different photographic techniques. So I, I don't know if it's right. Again, apologies, not an expert, but I'm fairly sure that, you know, they take like infrared images, mm-hmm. they take images with like, I want to say ultraviolet light, but yep. I'm not sure if that's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And they're all kind of different colours and they yeah. they show different things. So the infrared will show you heat. Mm-hmm. So it's quite interesting that we see these images in the tabloids and they probably don't explain that like, this isn't your standard image. Yeah. This is yeah, actually yeah. showing a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. But So there's, they will take radiation from across the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm. So, yeah, there will be an air, there'll be a category of images that we're used to seeing which are made with visible light. Mm. So there's loads of telescopes that use visible light, but the telescopes that were used to make this image use radio waves. Mm. Radio waves are much longer uh, and they have a lower frequency, so they're able to go through the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, and that's always one really big problem of taking of any ground-based telescope to take images or even to just observe the atmosphere tends to get in the way. There's only a couple of really sweet spots uh, along the radiation spectrum that we're able to actually see through. Luckily, radio is basically one of them. Um, So yeah, there was a team of scientists that were looking at 
the black hole M87, which is the one that they imaged in the end. And they looked at it and they realised that they would need a telescope that was the size of basically one side of the Earth. Wow. Yeah. They did maths and they found out that's what they would need. And they decided to just basically connect loads of different ground-based mm. telescopes, get them all to look at the same position at the same time, which is actually really, really hard mm. because it's all done within the smallest unit of time. Uh, and yeah, they chose a couple of days uh, in 2017. I think, again, it was in April, towards the beginning. And there was, I think it was about 10 to 12 days where they were all, there was a 200 strong team in the end mm. of people that were imaging the taking in the data processing it etc but loads of the teams were set up at all of the telescopes which are usually really high altitude and you're mm. in the middle of nowhere so you it's a real like hike you get there and they waited every day for the kind of green light from the director to mm. say that we're going to go ahead and take an observation today because taking an observation requires so much energy mm. takes up so much data so much so that at the end, all the data that they had had to be shipped, well, had to be um, sent on airplanes. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Because it wasn't something that they could just transfer between each other wow. digitally. Like no had... transfer. No, yeah. No <laughs> we transfer. It had to be physical data. Mm. Which, again, is really interesting because it kind of shows that we are at the limit mm. of that point of progress to a point where we're almost reverting Back. Yeah. on a basic level we're kind of reverting back to having to need something really physical mm. because we've yeah we've kind of pushed the limit of what we can do digitally in that certain exchange mm. and yeah they so they took these radio observations of what they hoped would give them an image of a black hole they got all of that data and offered it to lots of different institutions and mm. um, universities that had astrophysics labs or um, imaging anyone with imaging departments that would be interested in it to and gave them four possible algorithms to process the data and see what would come out at the end and then they brought back everyone's data uh, and then they had those four days of observation they collected the data from each day got a final image from all of that and then composited those four mm. images and then that's how we have the final image wow mm. that's a lot of work a lot of work and then it, a lot of collaboration as well which is really interesting so much yeah that was that's also really interesting how they really um, that's really significant in their uh, identity in the way mm. they present themselves is that they're literally called the Horizon Telescope collaboration mm. and any kind of introduction of them before a talk or any kind of conversation is always really stressed how much they are a collective rather yeah. than a singular which is great because, especially on, I think, uh, in the public sphere, the, the things that we know about physics or just about science knowledge and science progression, especially with like classic physics, mm. it's always singular people. Yeah. It's always like Galileo, Kepler, one-offs, who are always, and, and obviously their, um, their inventions and discoveries have been so amazing mm. and significant to what we know now and we wouldn't know now what we do if they hadn't um, worked those amazing things out in the first place um, but there's always more exchanges than just that one singular mm. discovery there's a really good book by Maria Popova called Figuring mm -hmm. and it looks at lots of different figures 
who we know for things that they've discovered and it kind of it steers a little bit more towards science um physics and uh environmental science uh and astronomy but she looks at those uh those points of discovery and then she fleshes them out and finds out what was going on uh the romantic aspects of that time uh like Johannes Kepler was everyone knows him because of what he taught us about the orbits of planets. Mm. Uh, but back in the time when he discovered that and he was trying to get people to understand, no one believed him or they thought that it was witchcraft or yeah. some anti-Christian, anti-religious mm. kind of motive, which then led to his own mother being accused of being a witch. Wow. Uh, which had a very horrible ending, which yeah. I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, so... The books like that, um, yeah, Maria Popovich does loads of research to find out all these different things and she um, interweaves all those experiences into this massive collection. But, yeah, which is great. So it's really great to have something like EHT now which actively projects itself outward as a collective collaboration mm. of people. Definitely. What's really interesting there with the story of Kepler is that we now view like some sciences as like very objective, like factual things. Yeah, absolutely. And then we're seeing like historically, actually, you know, people thought it was witchcraft. Yeah, And like yeah. there was a lot of arguments over like science, mm. you know, it wasn't, you know, and I remember learning about how science was like not kind of always... Um, well, like astrology wasn't like separate from like science, and mm. at one point they were kind of mixed together, and people yeah, had these absolutely. beliefs that also mixed in with like things that they could objectively, you know, experiment upon. Yeah. Um, and but now some of these some of these things, you know, Kepler's rather yeah. than being a witch, um, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, back in or not being a witch, but you know, being a history yeah. witch. But now that that history is not really there, and yeah. we kind of just see it as like. Yes, yeah, so Kepler discovered this, and yeah. and everyone agreed with him. Yeah, and then we move on. But yeah. yeah, there's this whole other kind of so many other layers underneath that of experience that kind of um, that shapes that one piece of information. But we don't mm. see any of that now, anyway, unless you have someone like Maria who kind of comes and brings resurfaces all of that information. So shall we move on from the book? Yeah, so it sounds yes. super interesting. Yeah, I can't no. wait for it to come out. Do you know right. when it's coming? So I've got a year, mm. um, which yeah, I think pretty much it's December to December to mm. get it done, and then so you're probably published. I imagine early next year Exciting. at some point. Keep an eye out for it. Yes, yeah, I'll let you know. So bringing it back to the library. Yes. Um, have you found many resources in the libraries that connect to the research you're doing for your book? The, so apart from the um, Afrofuturism mm. book itself, I've only just started to actually step out um, of doing the transcribing mm. and kind of slowly on the side finding stuff. So it's early days. Um, but the library itself is a pinnacle of the decolonization of knowledge, mm. for sure. So I'm definitely going to carve out some days to come here and just look. And with the nature of the book, because I'm interested in finding those kind of nuanced things, it will it will take like going through so many of the things in the journal archive and finding like the odd um, exhibition advert yeah. of something or article which has a piece in it which would go perfectly into the book. So I'm sure that there's going to be so much. Um, to find but I've only just started 
definitely. Shall we have a look at the um, Afrofuturism book then? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, she So it's all her, and there's now actually a 2.0, which is great. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, there's two other people that have edited another version. So I just started reading it. The introduction, she talks a lot about herself and how her parents kind of gave her a platform to explore science fiction mm. um, and it kind of made her notice that there was this there were these groups of people or networks of people that are looking at blackness in culture mm. and giving that and questioning the way that things what's being allowed for people uh, what isn't being allowed for people and yes yeah, so she just goes through that but I've just started but it's absolutely amazing mm. but she pulls a lot of pop culture together like I think Will I Am is in here at some point <laughs> Rihanna DJ Spooky, uh, and lots of lots of different people. Definitely talked a lot about pop culture. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was just reading Good Immigrant. I don't know if you've ever read that. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I've seen it a lot. Good. We recommend it. Great. Finally got around to reading it, and a lot of the, or well, a few of the chapters are about um, people who are working in the like the film and the television industry, yeah. and they talk a lot about being typecast mm. as a certain character. Yeah. So I guess with Afrofuturism and with kind of science fiction as a general genre, it does. Yeah. Like, give the possibility mm. of not being, you know, typecast because a lot of people were speaking about how they would never expect to be put into a period drama because exactly. there were no brown people. Yeah, in yeah, exactly. I mean, people always say that, but it's we know it's untrue. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. But that's, you know, the mindset of some of these casting people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and if they were to get into one of these productions they yeah. would probably be the slave or the servant yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know the one person in the village who happens to be from here or if they did get in they'd then be cries that it's ahistorical and yeah, stuff like that exactly so it's interesting the possibilities from science fiction to um kind of create a new world where there's yeah. not these problems exactly it opens up a new space where they that i think that's why it's thrived so much especially recently with younger people it give it like you've got um Black quantum futurism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a collective of two people. They had a show at the ICA recently. Nice. Less a show. It was more. Uh, they had a. Um, they had a temporary collection of um, works. They kind of use themselves as a platform to show other, um, other artists or other mm. people that are having or questioning the same things as they are. So I remember in the ICA, they had a sort of library, like a makeshift library on the side, and mm. had lots of different um, Afrofuturistic science fiction. Um, and they have a lots of musical performances. I think whilst they were at the ICA, there was a kind of a whole programme of different mm. events that they were putting on, um, speculative talks. Uh, yeah. Interesting. yeah. Do really you think that um, Afrofuturism is, like, has it kind of got into the mainstream yet or was there still kind of a divide between like mainstream science fiction and Afrofuturism? I think there in some ways yes you've got like Black Panther Mm. that is probably the easiest um probably the biggest uh exercise of Afrofuturism on a mainstream kind of level Mm. but then there's I imagine from I hopefully find out from research or hopefully I get corrected that there's a massive disparity from that to where everything else stands. Mm. Like a lot of feminist speculative fiction I've found has been either people's PhD theses mm. that are online, which are amazing Great. to find, but that's through them just putting it online there 
and from me searching something which is very specific mm. and then luckily mm. that comes up but there a lot of this stuff yeah it's not on public spheres that's why it's amazing that the library like it's got the zine section mm. so many brilliant things that you find there and zines are so important for especially when you've got subcultures that want to get out their own decision of uh again information mm. being collected in a certain way it's much more immediate uh and it's great that we have stuff like that here at the library for people to see mm. um but yeah through my research i can imagine that there is going to be uh, the majority of it is going to be stuff that isn't really um, publicly accessible yet mm. or you have to really be looking for it yeah. and then obviously that calls a wider question of um, why aren't people looking for it more mm. and why is it not being picked up there's all this, why, there's all this yeah. talent I know exactly <laughs> there's all it's this all talent there. get it on the TV yeah. and while we're talking about zines another little plug mm. our previous episode was actually with Kai who's working on the zine the zine collection in the library so right. if anyone wants to know more about that listen to that episode because it's amazing so every episode I ask my guest to share a text from the library. Rashi has brought a transcript she wrote from the recording of Innova's first symposium in 1994, Global Visions Towards a New Internationalism in the Visual Arts. So I've got some bits, so from the two, so there's the New Internationalism Symposium, mm. and there's Evelyn Nicodemus, who is an artist, writer, she studies social anthropology, originates from Tanzania. At this point in the symposium, she's just spoken. She sat with Jelaine Tawadros and they're having a Q&A between the two of them. Mm. Sandy Nairn is chairing uh, and they start off and an audience member, um, I have to say an older white male audience member, <laughs> stands up and comments very negatively on Evelyn's previous talk. Mm how she speaks about anthropology mm. and he kind of criticises her approach that she has when she talks about anthropology and goes on very quickly to talk about his own career in anthropology and mm. why, you know, his trying to, I guess, validate why he's having such a strong opinion because he spent many years working in certain countries, this, mm. this, that, it's his career, etc., I, I should be more neutral, actually, sorry. <laughs> I always, I always feel, I'm, I always, I'm like, oh, when I'm hosting this podcast, like, oh, I've said some spicy, yeah, spicy sorry. comments. Yeah, that but was then spicy. I think, Innova, um, we are, we, we are describe spicy. ourselves as a radical arts organisation. So I think we are allowed to have radical opinions yeah, right. as employees, exactly. as, as volunteers. That's why we're here, well. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so you've got this audience member who stands up and kind of says all the stuff, like, I don't think that what you're saying is valid, that you haven't studied enough, da, da, da. Evelyn. I would rather not be as civilised. I didn't come here to discuss anthropology. I came here to discuss art. But I have to take the question on anthropology. What we see happening in anthropological museums, they have been asking us, how do we proceed with our science? Since they are meeting objection from us, refusing to be their objects. And then they have been going into the field of art. What I would like to say is I find you very patronising because you are expecting that I have not followed the discourse of anthropology. I wouldn't be standing here and arguing about it and being fierce about it if I haven't followed the so-called new anthropology, liberated or radical anthropology. I refuse to use this time to discuss about your career. It's my career that's important here. And then there's a huge applause from wow. everyone, which is amazing. 
and then he just sits um, down and that's just one drop in mm. the kind of exchanges that happens throughout the whole symposium that's so yeah I really hope that that people request to come and watch it yeah. or come and read it because it's brilliant there's another um, part later on in that Q&A mm. so Hu Hanru who is one of the speakers mm. I think currently he is the artistic director of Maxi in Rome as well so Ooh. that's where he's been um, but I read that uh, somewhere it does say that he is still based in uh, the States and Europe so uh, and Paris I think so he's place. like every, he's just all over <laughs> living his best life yeah right <laughs> as desired he's amazing so he asked Evelyn I remember I was interviewing Jean-Hubert Martin I asked him what do you think if you made your show um, Magician de la Terre in mm. Africa would you like to do it? He said, yes, of course, if there is the material possibility. As Jimmy said earlier, if a nation doesn't talk to the other, it doesn't notice that they are a nation. The whole discussion of a new internationalism is strictly connected to the Western institution framework, which cannot be opposed in another context. So I really cannot imagine this exhibition in Paris being in the middle of Africa. I wanted to ask Evelyn what she thinks of this. Evelyn. Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on which location. I mean, Africa is a big continent and people forget that. For example, the country that I come from, Tanzania, has got 120 cultures, but we communicate through one language, Swahili. Swahili itself is a lingua franca, one of the oldest, where 40% of its words or more are actually Arabic. And then you have a mixture of Persian, Hindi, Hebrew, then the spoken Bantu languages, spoken into Bantu tongue and grammar. You see the internationalism within the language structure itself. Now, if you look at the history of the new notion of art, disconnected from religion and so forth, which is less than 100 years old on the African continent, and and then you look at the illiteracy within the continent, then you take the class perspective, then you start looking at the history of art here in Europe, when and which class did start this new notion? When did the new interpretation start? Which says, for example, a construction like uh, our Greeks made it, our Greeks made it. Well, when the Greeks were doing these sculptures, they were not doing them for reasons that we interpret from them today. Mm-hmm. So now let us take Magician de la Terre. Let's say I take it to Tanzania. It would be quite an exotic, um, but in different senses, because the communication is so bad. Because where I grew up, there were no sculptures ever. I look at the Makonda sculpture with an exotic looking and some kind of Christian prejudice, which I have inherited through Christianity. Some will look from that perspective, uh, but they are educated. Some will laugh and say, what is this? Don't they have anything else to do than to come and use money and do this type of thing? A, a big laughter from the audience. Oh, uh, I'm glad I'm Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You are, you're part of the crowd. All the years later. Great. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to the depicting, let's say the so-called uh, European classical, where it depicts a human, a body, somebody, many will look at that and say, ah, well, this is something it looks like. How has he done that? It will be very different, but the reaction will be there. It doesn't matter if you are illiterate or not because of the scene and the seeing. And I think it will be individual interpretations. So I wouldn't say that it shouldn't be in Africa. But then we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? 
what do we want out of it and so forth I cannot give a good answer but perhaps no yes <laughs> which is great that's a great answer yeah really good really interesting that they're using um, Magician's Delateur which actually the the catalogue is just over there just caught my eye how funny oh, great. Um, because I think that was quite a of course it is yeah, of course, yeah. it's just over there. Um, that's what happens when you record in the library. Yeah, right. Um, but I think it was quite a divisive exhibition at the yeah. time. Yeah, The way that it absolutely. treated art from the African continent. Yeah. The, the Western gaze is very exoticizing to make that into a... Yeah, and I, that was part of the very... Uh, a lot of the negative kind of connotations taken mm. from Magician de la Terre. So I thought that was a really interesting question that someone posed. And I just love her first reaction is, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. Oh, brilliant. How has your perception of the collection changed since you've been volunteering? Yeah, I've definitely been surprised by how in-depth a, um, a lot of the areas or just such specific mm. texts, such specific journals that I wasn't even expecting. Like, I'm British Indian, and mm. to see so many books talking about contemporary female uh, Indian artists, mm. uh, which, A, made me feel so awful for not knowing those people straight <laughs> away. Um, but as soon as I got over that... Well, don't feel bad, because there's been whole systems put in your way. I know, no, no, right, exactly. <laughs> it's not my fault, it's is not it? Awful. No. <laughs> um, but now I'm in the right place to rectify that, mm. which is brilliant. My perception... Uh, has only grown mm. more positively over the time that I've been here. And yeah, to the point where I talk about it all the time. <laughs> all, like, at the pub, oh, at, in shops. Yeah. Um, like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this thing in Stuart Hall Library. Or even Stuart Hall. Oh, my God. Like, it just getting to... I didn't even know who he was mm. before I saw the vacancy for here yeah. and then just Googled what the name was. I had no idea. There was no, there was nothing in my institutional learning that um, pointed me towards him. Yeah. Um, and he's such an important figure. And any time that I'm working in the library and maybe like a trustee comes in or like mm. an older artist who knows him um, or knew him or used to previously work with him, there's just such a level of respect um, for him. And as soon as you start reading a sentence, yeah. you, you know why. That. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. remember because um, I found out about Shoot Hall while I was at uni and I went to lucky a friend's you. house yeah well yeah. yeah lucky me lucky see my great art history course that talked yeah, about right. that one like, that one lecture you know at what? least it was true they were good I, <laughs> I joke about it but I was lucky yeah um, I could have had zero lectures in African art and I yeah. could be learning about boring stuff so you know exactly um, but I remember going to a friend's house and her brother was studying, I think he was studying sociology A-level, mm. and he had a Stuart Hall book, and I got really excited. I was like, wow. oh my God, you're reading Stuart Hall? And he yeah. said to me like I was mad. Like, Why is this girl so excited? Because oh. obviously when you're like an A-level student, you're like, yeah. oh, this is boring. Yeah, you've just um, been forced to kind of read this exactly. thing. Exactly. But what's interesting is that Stuart Hall is on a lot of American high school syllabus. Mm. Um, and I don't see anything like that apart mm. apart from your example of your friend just now. I've never heard of anyone yeah. that's had to study sociology A level as well. It's quite an obscure A level. Yeah, I think. It's so true. it is it is unusual. But it's only going to be in that context that people are going to read about it. Mm. Um, yeah, I, barely any of my friends kind of knew of him before. That's changed now. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> now yeah, they know. I'm now you keep a telling them. Stuart Hall. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just so eloquent. Mm. 
uh, the second piece I was transcribing is him and Michael Hart. Hmm. Uh, Michael Hart had recently, I think it was in 2002, maybe. Um, yeah, 2002, Michael Hart had just written a book with Antonio Negri called Empire. Hmm. Um, and Innova at the time were doing a series of debates called Changing States. Right, yes. And in the last one, um, Stuart Hall has, a, I guess, debate, is definitely a debate, but more of a conversation of Stuart Hall and Michael Hart talking about the book and talking about issues of uh, globalisation and looking at globalisation and the nation state. Mm. Uh, and efforts by certain nations to be dominating nation states mm. and um, whether is it possible to be outside of globalization and does globalization have a center mm. um, and it's such a brilliant conversation mm. and I can't believe it's just on a tape <laughs> in a box yeah and it's uncatalogued yeah. and this is what Stuart Hall's thoughts are when he's just He's just you know, chatting. He's just chatting. And That's his chatting. You it's, know. <laughs> I can't believe that just comes out of his head. Yeah. But I can believe it because mm. he was amazing. Um, but yeah, actually what was really interesting is right at the end, it's 12,000 words, and right at the end, also he says he's just going to have a quick comment and it will be like 600 words, <laughs> uh, which is brilliant. There is somebody asked a question about... Um, environmental devastation hmm. uh, and I thought whether it's worth actually it's quite it's a really small reply but whether it's worth actually yeah, reading out it. just because I just think it's so interesting after a whole conversation talking about um, Marxist theory and applying it to uh, the nation state uh, migration etc and they open it up to the floor and a audience member asks um, it's quite off tangent um, but definitely comes into the conversation really nicely he asks is it not already too late for all of this this environmental devastation and other forms of negative anti-life such that it's too late jerry cohen argued something like that in if you're an egalitarian how come you're so rich which is a great title for a book brilliant um it's quite an effective argument against the argument of the grave digger to come out of this mess uh, then Stuart Hall replies saying, can I just say that I think that one of the reasons why the ecological and environmental questions present themselves as a kind of terminal is because they are terminal to the planet as a whole. I mean that they are terminal if there's no change to all of the utopias, dystopias, all of them in the same bin as it were. So it brings a sense of finitude and finality to the argument and it limits how wild one's innate utopianism can be allowed to roam. That's absolutely true. I'll say one other thing, though, and that is, it seems to me that until the current ecological and environmental movement in the context of globalisation, what I would call the planetary consciousness, which is required to make a change in environmental questions, because after all, environmental questions cannot be dealt with within the framework of the nation-state, you can't say, you know, stop the pollution floating in here, please. This is Britain. <laughs> oh, but many wish yeah, they could. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, they're saying it anyway. Uh, so precisely because of that, it makes planetary consciousness possible. But this is, of course, not necessary to say that planetary consciousness is progressive in all its forms. 
because global capital thinks in planetary terms too. Everywhere is within, so it is as if, nevertheless, there is a kind of stage which makes a certain kind of thinking urgent in the way in which it grips the imagination, in the way in which I think, until we were so aware of environmental devastation, which the nature of imperialism and capitalism has contributed so much to, until we were aware of that, this possibility was also not there. That's a very measured way, because while Marx always offered you an option between socialism and barbarism. So just so interesting to have someone, to have him say that in 2002, yeah. and almost two decades later. Yeah. We're still having these. Yeah. Well, we're kind of waking up to these conversations, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, on a, on a, I think maybe for us, being slightly younger, mm. um, and for people getting it on, if they if they're only getting that kind of conversation from the like the wider media sphere and social media, it all feels really new. Mm. But then when you start looking, it's like these conversations have been going on for so long. Yeah, Rachel Carson, she was the first person to actually talk about the negative use of pesticides in U.S. agriculture. Mm. Uh, she was the first person to actually write it in kind of more common terms for everyone to be able to understand. Mm. And I think it's one of the best-selling books in US history, it should be at least. Um, And it has such a huge effect. And she repeatedly said at the time that she was only giving a face through her writing Mm. to so many other scientists before her, uh, environmentalists before her that were doing the same research. Again, that really brilliant collective... Mm. um, projecting that collective identity and effort. Um, And kind of translating the science for the general reader who doesn't understand it. It's what we were talking about earlier about... Science communication, you know. It's a field in itself. Mm. Um, But an interesting one because it pulls from everywhere else. Mm. You know, it pulls from media, it pulls from art, it pulls from hard academics. Mm. So, yeah, so I just... That is just like a snippet of what Stuart Hall says. Um, is very interestingly ties in a lot with what we're talking about in day-to-day general with environmental issues. Mm, definitely. Oh, it's fab- fabulous. Well, thank you. Thanks thank so you. much. Thank <laughs> you so much for asking me. It's great. And that's all we have time for this week. As ever, thanks so much to my guest, Rashi Rajguru, for joining me, Sheba Manika for providing the music, and to you all for listening. Join me in a few weeks' time when I'll be chatting to Ni Zhaoyi. In our last episode, she discusses her work in the library and her PhD research into the expansive curatorial project Long March, a walking visual display. I am blind, I cannot see, I stumble and I trip. I feel the sun hot upon my face. I smell the fragrance from the flowers, each bloom comes forth in sun and shell. I touch the stem, some smooth, some light. I hear birds sing in the new trees and the buzzing of the bees. I hear the children's laughter as they come out of school, the water splashing in the stream, so cool and wet and beautiful.